your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, we'll be reading the first five verses of this chapter. <clears throat> this is the Word of God. Paul is the human author, but uh, it was fully inspired by the incarnate Word, that is to say, the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, working in the Apostle Paul. And so this is just as much God's word, therefore it's perfect. Uh, and you need to give it reverent and careful attention as I read it to you. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we thank you for the preached word. We thank you for the promises that attend the faithful preaching of the word, that is to say, uh, expositing what you are saying in it uh, and not reading our own thoughts into it, but taking out what is already there that you have already said and its implications. Lord, I am uh, less than fully faithful uh, as a man. I'm a sinner. And so I need your grace now more than ever, to faithfully unpack this passage. Lord Jesus, would you please be our prophet this morning? Would you please be our preacher this morning? Uh, Use me, my thoughts, my words, um, and please forbid that I should make a mistake in the pulpit and say something that is contrary to what you are saying here to us in this passage. And would you please bless us as we listen to you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, you know who Christopher Columbus is? You ever heard the name Christopher Columbus? I think most of you kids probably have. Maybe not. If you haven't, Christopher Columbus is said to be the the man who first discovered America. Now, as a Norwegian, I want to object to that. It wasn't Christopher Columbus. It was the Vikings. But that's for another conversation. Anyway... The famous man, the second guy to arrive at the continent uh, of North America, which is where our country is, it's in North America, is a guy named Christopher Columbus. He was an Italian, right? Yeah, Italian, thank you. He talked to a Spaniard, but he was an Italian. Anyway, um, Christopher Columbus came over here in the year 1492. That was over 500 years ago when he came to the America. 
And there was a little uh, a little uh, saying that I was taught when I was a little boy to remember when Christopher Columbus came. And it goes like this. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Most of you adults know that, right? Right? That's how you can remember when Christopher Columbus came over to America was uh, by saying that little limerick. But I one time heard, once heard, and it was on a television show, somebody, it was a joke, but he was getting the date wrong, and he thought it was 19, uh, 1493, and so he came up with this limerick that was 1493, Columbus sailed the deep blue sea. And he was like, that, it was not 1493. And this, he was arguing with another guy, he's like, no, 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 that's not true. It was 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Now that's just a silly little story, and like I say, I watched it on a television program, I think it was Gilligan's Island, actually. Anyway, years ago, and I still remember it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I still remember it. But here's the thing. Here's the reason I'm bringing this up, okay? Is because it doesn't much matter to you anyway, whether you're taught that Columbus came to America in 1492 or whether he came to America in 1493. It really doesn't make too much difference. Yes, you're getting it wrong if you say 1493, but it's not going to make a big difference in your life if you make that mistake of if somebody teaches you that date wrong, okay? But that is not true about teaching in the church. That is not true about teaching God's word. When you make a mistake, when you teach God's word, which is what I'm doing right now, by the way, when you make a mistake, it's automatically a big mistake when you get it wrong. And it can have major, major effects on people. It could actually, depending on what's being said that's wrong about God's, what God says in his word, it can land you in hell for eternity. Lots of people have gone to hell in the past because they heard teaching that was not in accordance with the Bible. I'm going to try not to do that this morning. Very hard. And and Jesus is going to help me. And you. But my point is, teaching what is taught about what God says is very important. And you're going to talk more about that, and we're going to see that in this passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment. I'll give you the three points in a moment. But first, I just want to um, remind you uh, about something here. We learned back in chapter 1 of uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, we learned back in chapter 1 that there were certain, we're going to call them quasi-Christian teachers in and around the place where Timothy was ministering, which was the city of Ephesus, uh, there were certain quasi, they were passing themselves off as the false teachers often were, as Christian. And they were trying to persuade believers in and around Ephesus of certain, we read in chapter 1 anyway, of certain speculative ideas uh, to which those false teachers held. Now, these speculative ideas were regarding what Paul calls myths and genealogies. Um, 
which most biblical scholars agree were Jewish myths and genealogies, had to do with connections with Judaism. These guys were probably uh, raised as in, in a Jewish household and were claiming, like so many of the false teachers were, oh, we're Christian now, we believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. But they weren't Christian. But they were passing themselves off that way. Anyway, they were, they were uh, um, peddling ideas, speculations, and myths about uh, of a Jew in a Jew of a Jewish nature uh, to hearers, anybody who would listen to them in and around Ephesus, and they were trying to attract uh, actual believers to to buy into their their teaching. The genealogies, by the way, were most likely those of the patriarchs that are found in the book of Genesis, uh, and the myths that. Uh, Paul references in chapter 1 that these guys were pushing were probably similar to the speculations surrounding Old Testament narrated events, uh, which were found in the rabbinic Haggadah, that's how it's pronounced, which were uh, something which was, is recited, I believe, even today by Jews at Passover, the Haggadah. Uh, and similar speculations were also found, or are also found in the writings of the first century philosopher Philo, and also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way. So, this was very common, this speculative stuff uh, in, in the intertestamental Jewish period uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They'd conjured up all this stuff and uh, speculating about uh, you know, the lives of the patriarchs that who's, merely whose names are mentioned, but perhaps nothing more. And they would build out a, you know, kind of a biography of, of men like that. Um, and this is the myth that Paul's probably referring to, which is why we say these guys were probably uh, Jewish. Anyway, in addition to trying to pass off their speculative and fanciful notions about what transpired in the past, as, as if it were actual history, these religious troublemakers were also trying to convince Christians of ideas that were flatly incompatible with the teachings of Scripture. Not just that weren't mentioned by the Scriptures, but were flatly incompatible with the teaching of Scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So earlier, it was just stuff they made up that really Scripture didn't speak of, but they made stuff up. It wasn't necessarily contrary to Scripture. It was just false. But here, we're going to talk, uh, Paul talks about things that were flatly contra- contradicted by uh, or incompatible with the Scriptures. We'll get to that in the second point. That leads me to the three points. The first, we're going to talk about the nature uh, of the teaching that Paul is combating here in this uh, in this section of chapter 4. Then we're going to look at uh, more briefly at the content of the teaching that Paul is combating here, say some things about that. And then finally, we're going to look at the problem with the teaching that Paul is combating, combating with here. Uh, combating here, I should say. So first the nature, then the content, then the problem with this teaching. So first the nature of the teaching. This teaching, uh, which we're going to look at in the second point, the specifics of it, but it produced, first of all, a an apostasy. That is to say, a falling away from the faith and from God on the part of certain individuals who had previously been part of the visible church in and around the area of Ephesus and perhaps beyond. People falling away apostatizing from the faith in this area. And it was a result of this teaching, this false teaching that, as I say, I'll get to in a little bit. But they ended up falling away from the faith. 
or deserting the faith, or more to the point, the God of this faith, who is the triune God and his Son, the Lord Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. That's what apostasy means, to fall away or to desert or to withdraw. It can also mean to withdraw. So it's what somebody does when they, it's what somebody does when they spiritually withdraw from God after having previously expressed a commitment and loyalty to him through Jesus. That's what apostasy is. This is what happened to the seed that fell on the rocky soil that we read of in Luke chapter 8, verse 13. And those on the rocky soil are those, meaning seeds, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, so they respond positively at first, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, believe in quotes, and in time of temptation fall away. And there's the word. Okay? Their belief is not saving belief, in other words. It's not, they're not savingly united in, in a, with a faith that savingly unites one to Jesus, but there's a sense in which they believe. But then they fall away from God and from Jesus. And the fact that this is something that actually happens to professing Christians is evident from, among other places, what we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where we read this, The uh, writer of the Hebrews warns uh, his readers, and he says, Take care, brethren. Notice brethren. Brothers and sisters in the faith. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away, there it is, from the living God. The Puritans called these passages, like this one I just read to you in Hebrews chapter 3, Gospel Threatenings. Gospel threatenings. We don't normally put those two words together, but they actually uh, belong together at places like this. Um, uh, to uh, essentially so that to warn God's people, don't think that just because you made a profession of faith uh, that uh, that you can't uh, that you can't walk away from God because your faith may not be genuine. If you walk away from God, and so don't go around thinking, "Well, I I I, I walked the aisle when I was seven, I'm good," and that somehow uh, the rest of your life is irrelevant. That's not the case. At any rate, point is, falling away is something that happens to professing Christians. And Paul writes here in verse one that this apostasy from the Christian faith on the part of some had been spoken of before he wrote this letter to Timothy. It was spoken of by the Holy Spirit of God himself. We read in verse 1 again, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Now, here what Paul is probably doing in verse 1, I say probably, I'm not sure, but there's a pretty good chance what he's doing here, because he references the Spirit as saying this. Like, well, when is the Spirit saying this? And to whom is he saying this? And do we have any record of the Spirit, the Spirit saying this? Well, the, if you look in Revelation, the, uh, Christ, when he makes his, uh, when he speaks to the seven churches, uh, regularly it says, and Christ himself is speaking, but then he says, the Spirit says, 
And so it's the Spirit of Christ. Christ is speaking through the Spirit there, and then it, and then it records what it records in, in many Bibles in red, uh, which mean, meaning the words of Jesus. Um, and so to say the Spirit says um, is really can in, in the is demonstrably in the Bible can mean that Jesus says. So I say that he's probably here referring to prophecies that Jesus himself spoke during his earthly ministry when he was on the earth. Prophecies which he made, if you will, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, working in and through him. Predictions that Paul might have in mind here when he says the Spirit uh, says these things about it speaks of a falling away would include, among other places perhaps, um, Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, where Jesus says this in the Olivet Discourse. If I can get my fingers to work. Um, And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Uh, Another similar example is found in Mark chapter 13, verse 22. Those may be what Paul has in mind. We don't know for sure. And the truth is, it doesn't make that much difference. The Spirit clearly said this uh, to somebody, whether it be through Jesus directly or uh, on some occasion that's not mentioned. Point is, the Spirit said it. So, uh, but Paul indicates through this uh, uh, there in verse one that this falling away by some in the community of faith would occur, and he he indicates rather when it would occur. He uses the phrase in later times. Now. At first, when you read that, you go, well, that must mean some distant time from Paul's day. That's probably not what's going on here. Uh, it's clear from what, uh, from Peter's Pentecost sermon when he quotes Joel that the, uh, the, uh, the last days, which is synonymous with the phrase, um, the latter times, those are, those are virtually the same thing, that the last days were when Jesus, uh, when Paul was preaching that sermon, that they had arrived. In other words, the, the, there's a sense in which the last days are all the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, that we're in the last days and have been for 2,000 years. It's kind of the point. But here's what's going on, I think. Paul is using this phrase, in the last days. What he's actually doing here is, he's actually referring to something that was happening in his own day, had begun to happen in his own day and probably was continues throughout the whole of the New Testament age. But he's using here what, what, uh, what one commentator referred to as emphatic futuristic language characteristic of prophecy to indicate that he's talking about something that was actually happening in his own day as well as could be happening after his day, but was, uh, was also contemporaneous to his own writing of this letter. We know, by the way, that Paul is probably referring to something that was happening in his own day because of what he says in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, he says, I'll start at the beginning of the verse. He's in the middle of a sentence here, but I'll just read it that way. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining, because this is what these people were teaching, right? These people in the latter days, the latter times, they would be men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared, as in now, 
that word's not there, but it's implied, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And so, what he's doing there is he's spelling out the specifics of what these those responsible for this apostasy were doing, and he does so in the present tense. There in verse 3. So then, this falling away was almost certainly occurring in Paul's day, in fact, in Ephesus, um, and perhaps elsewhere, and presumably this falling away would be a feature of the entire New Testament age, not just Paul's day, but the entire latter days, or last days, latter times, this language here. Which is why, by the way, the Spirit arranged to have this description and warning of a first century event, apostasy in the first century, included in the New Testament, for New Testament Christians to read and be warned of similar occurrences in their own day. Okay? Which is why it's probably found here. So, when we come to passages like this that describe something that was going on in Paul's day, an apostasy, a type of apostasy that was going on in Paul's day, we need to use this opportunity, our exposure here to this text, uh, and to similar texts like it, as an opportunity to to do some uh, soul-searching, to evaluate our own beliefs, uh, and to see if they actually line up with what Scripture says, or if we are entertaining beliefs that we just want to believe because we want to believe them and the scriptures don't necessarily support them. By the way, it's also an opportunity to evaluate what's taught in your church. Make sure it's square with scripture. And if it isn't, you need to take a hike. Or fire me. That's probably the first thing you should do. Anyway. um, I can't believe I just said that. Um, Anyway, this falling away... Uh, by some in the faith community in Paul's day, he tells us, had occurred as a result of demonic activity in the church, in and around the church. We read this again in verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith by, it's implied there, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Clear as a bell. So this falling away um, had occurred, this demonic activity, rather, was in the form of anti-biblical, against the Bible, anti-biblical lies, teaching that was, was deceptive, that was devised by the forces of darkness themselves, who then shared their novel theology with, and, and, was, and that was enthusiastically disseminated by their uh, human lackeys these false teachers. But it was demons who were behind it, you see. And these demonically inspired unbiblical teachings or anti-biblical teachings was then responsible for turning the hearts of some of God's covenant people, I didn't say believers there, I said covenant people, was responsible for turning the hearts of some of such folks away from God and from Jesus to the point that they had become full-blown apostates. 
And the believers in Ephesus who were being exposed to these perverse uh, teachings, uh, lies, courtesy, were, were, they were being exposed to it, again, courtesy of the false teachers who were on the periphery. So the demons were working through the false teachers and using them as as uh, their minions to get their get their job done, which is to deceive the church. And this is the goal of Satan and his empire, is to take as many of us with him as possible, especially those of us who are in the church. He's got all those that are outside. But he wants you. And his dark angels want you. They want you to go to hell with them, the lake of fire with them. They hate you. They hate all of us because they hate our Lord. And they hate his covenant and they hate his church. And he want, they want nothing more than to destroy while they have time to destroy souls. Yours and mine. So don't think we're on neutral ground here just because we're in this building and it happens to be Sunday morning. Yes, I, I need to retract some of that. Um, we, are, we are with the Lord here. But, but the de- demons, and Satan can only be in one place at a time, but who knows, he might show up sometime. But his, his henchmen are trying to get in here. They're trying to get into your heads and your hearts and lie to you and make you believe things that aren't true and that aren't biblical. Maybe just a slight deviation from Scripture, but just enough to mess with you spiritually. That's what's going on when people are deceived into and leave the church or leave the true church for a false church. Or just leave the church entirely and go, I can, I can love Jesus from my couch or worship Jesus from my couch while I'm on my phone. On Sunday morning. No, you can't. But Satan and his helpers will try to make you think you can. They want to. Anyway, Paul describes these human servants of Satan, these false teachers, when he indicates that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Surprise. They're hypocritical. How so? Because they undoubtedly professed again to be teaching the will of God when in fact they were actually doing the bidding of the Prince of Darkness and peddling his poison theological pills. He describes them as liars. It's not hard to figure out that one out, is it? They were trying to pass off Satan's falsehoods as God's truth. Still are. All too many churches in this very community are pushing those doctrines. Satanically inspired doctrines. Works salvation gospels. Anti-Trinitarian gods. They're also described by Paul as people who had their, had had their consciences seared. As with a branding iron. They'd seared their consciences in that they had lost the ability to distinguish between right and wrong on account of their own ongoing and deliberate efforts to deceive themselves with those demonic doctrines. They wanted to believe a lie, and they did. 
and their conscience died as a result. That can happen to can't happen to a true Christian because your, ne- your conscience was never, can never be, never be totally seared but it can happen to churchgoers who think everything's just right between them and God but who go to church, give money participate, do all that stuff but whose hearts haven't been truly converted and haven't truly bowed the knee to Christ as their only hope and their king and uh, fool themselves into thinking all is well and end up um, believing Things other than what are found in the scriptures, because they're like, well, I don't have to. I don't have to believe all that that the that the you know that the church teaches me. I don't have to tell them that I believe something different, but I don't have to believe it all. I've met I met somebody recently. And I can't. I'm, I'm trying to recall the event, but somebody recently who thought all was well. He was just fine with God. Oh, actually, I talked to him last night. That's right. He called me, and he th- and I told him, "You're not a Christian." He was like, "What?" He said, "You're crushing my heart." It's like, "I love you." That's why I'm telling you the truth. You're not a Christian. Y'all don't know him, so that's. But anyway, he he he's believing a lie. The apostasy, which we regularly see among professing Christians in our day, including my friend that I talked about last night. Uh, can undoubtedly be traced back to the work of Satan and demons who use perversions of and denials of the truth of God's word as their foremost tool to foster apostasy within the heart of churchgoers. Truth matters. This speaks to the importance of Holding to correct doctrine. Not being a lazy Christian when it comes to what you believe. You all need to dig into the Word, folks. I do too. You need to dig in and you need to know what you believe. And you need to know that it's, and be convinced, rightly convinced, that it's what God has taught you in the Scriptures. You need to be Bereans when you listen to people like me. And you also need to speak to the importance of churches preaching correct doctrine and not telling funny anecdotes about whatever. Special interest stories or human interest stories from the pulpit. Leads me. So, as I said, it was false teaching that promoted this falling away from the faith. So, let's look at briefly what's the content of this false teaching. Just the second point, and it's fairly, fairly brief here. The last two points are fairly brief. The content. So, two things essentially that, that he mentions. He, there might be more, but he mentions only two, and they're found there, and I just read it in verse three. First of all, these false teachers were telling their listeners that they shouldn't get married. That marriage is a bad thing. Um, at least that marriage is spiritually detrimental to you. If not, it's an outright sin to be married. We're not sure which of those two, but it's one of those two. It's not healthy. It's not wise. It's not. It's not spiritual to get married. Does that sound familiar? 
most of the church down through its the last 2,000 years, uh, greater portions of the church have believed that that's more spiritual. Don't get married. You're more spiritual. Hogwash. Paul has indicated elsewhere that if a Christian does remain single, so this is true, he said if a Christian does remain single, uh, he may well be able to devote more time and energy to serving the Lord than he otherwise would if he were married. And that, that is true. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 and 35. But, Paul also insisted that there's nothing improper about being married in that same chapter, verse 28, and he made it clear that God intends for many Christians to be so. Married, that is. Verse 7 of that same chapter in 1 Corinthians. So for Paul's opponents in Ephesus um, that he's referring to here, to forbid marriage as something inherently wrong directly contradicted what God himself had said in his word. This means that any and all vows promising to remain celibate in the hopes of being more spiritual as a result of doing so are sinful. Vows of celibacy are sinful. Now, there have been believers who have unwisely but un knowingly thought they were okay and taken such vows. Some of our, uh, some of the medieval um, monks, uh, some of them were pretty good theologians and got a lot right, but took these vows. But they're wrong. So these guys were pushing that uh, unbiblical view. They were also telling their listeners that they shouldn't eat certain foods uh, they advocate abstaining from foods. Now, it is likely, can't prove it, but it's likely that Paul is using the word food here to refer probably to meat, uh, meat specifically. Um, so, and if that is the case, then these false teachers were insisting that it is a sin for a Christian to eat meat. And, you know, only, only unspiritual people eat meat. We don't know it's meat. Uh, that's a that's a guess, but it's probably a good one. Uh, clearly, they weren't saying all food is sinful, or they'd all be dead themselves. So they weren't saying that. It's a specific kind that they were had in mind, and meat's as a good guess. But even if it wasn't meat, they were forbidding the eating of something, whatever it was, uh, or some things, and it was wrong. In fact, it was leading people to apostatize who had claimed to be followers of Christ, along with the forbidding of marriage uh, teaching of theirs. You are not going to be rendered more godly or less godly on account of what you do or don't eat. Now, how much you eat, that's a bit of a different story. That can be sinful. Quantity. But not what you eat. Or what you drink, by the way. All forms of um, asceticism, 
of this kind of rigorous lifestyle, for, we'll call it asceticism. All forms of asceticism, denial, denying yourself mar- you know, uh, marriage and the benefits of marriage, denying yourself foods and whatever else they did, you know, uh, that the, the medieval monastics uh, uh, would engage in. Whatever forms of asceticism they are, all forms amount to a denial of what the Bible teaches and are therefore sinful. Because of what I have said about biblical teaching already, they're sinful, and, and uh, I'm referring now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, what I said about marriage a moment ago. So that's some of the biblical data that indicates that that's a sinful vow to take and sinful thing to uh, engage in. Uh, but uh, there's also what I'm what I'm about to say in the third point here, which I'm going to get to in a second. Also, is biblical data that uh, demonstrates the impropriety of of asceticism of any kind. I'll get to that in a minute. But before I do, let me ask you this: Are you yourself? And this, I don't know. I'm going to ask it. Are you yourself, perhaps, engaging in any ascetic? denial-type practices in your life, are you doing this in the hopes of making yourself more pleasing to God or more spiritual or more godly or something like that? Is there some kind of asceticism, maybe subtle, that you're practicing? I don't know if the chances are very great uh, in this audience that that's the case, but perhaps you ought to ask yourself. Christians can get into that, you know definitely fall into that, thinking they're more holy because they, well, don't drink alcoholic beverages, for example. God made alcohol, just in case anybody wants to know, as an example. If you're doing that, you need to stop. It's not only sinful, it may well cause you to fall out of love with God and with Jesus. Leads me to my third point, last point. And that is the problem with the teaching that Paul is combating here. Fundamentally, it's um, it's contrary to Scripture. In addition to what I've already said, it contradicts the Bible's teaching that everything God has created was good when he created it. Everything. You see, all forms of asceticism are implicit denials of this fact. They're implicit denials of the purposes for which God created the things that he has created. Whether it be material things that are found in the physical universe, such as animals and the meat that comes from them, or be it relational phenomena, I'm going to call them, such as the institution of marriage. God created the institution of marriage. It's it's his institution. That's why the state of Texas doesn't get to doesn't get to say or uh, you know, decide what marriage is, let alone the federal government. For God has created everything which He created. He created it good. Whether it be the material things, such as oh, by the way, the poppy plant from which heroin, but oh yes, morphine come, and oh, they ta- the seeds taste really good on bread. Or alcohol. Again, God created that. Or whether it be institutions, such as the institution of work. Work is a good thing. 
God created it as a good thing. And marriage, another institution that he created. All of it, when he created it, was good. Including man, before the fall. And all these institutions and material objects that God has created, again, are good in that, and here's why they're good, in that they have been made, whether it be an institution or some sort, some material object, have been made by God for the benefit of his image bearers, to be a source of blessing to us. Us in particular, by the way, the church, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. It's particularly for the church that these things have been created, to be a blessing to us. And not only good in that sense, God not only created the institutions and the material objects around us as good in that sense, but also good because God's glory has been and continues to be magnified in his making of such things. That's the other reason why it's good. And so to treat anything that God has created and repudiate it and say, no, 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 we must not, I don't want that, or I don't want that, I don't want marriage, or I don't want, you know, whatever. Because it can be used for evil. Alcoholic beverages clearly can be used for evil. Often are, by a lot of people. But are they inherently evil? No. You know, uh, Potato, well, he didn't create potato chips, but the, the grease that's found in potato chips, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, even though it can be used for evil. In and of itself, it's fine. And the only appropriate, and here's the final point uh, of this, uh, the problem with this uh, teaching of Paul's is it's not the right response to what God has done. The right response to what God has done in his creating of all these things, institutions and material things found around us, including the animals, the appropriate response to God's provision of such good gifts for us to enjoy is to accept them with great gratitude in our hearts to God for having given them. We don't deserve them.
Lord's Supper is one of two holy ordinances that Jesus instituted prior to uh, his ascension into heaven, um, baptism being the other ordinance, uh, holy ordinance or sacrament. Record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found, uh, and among other places, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22, where we read the following. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The uh, Lord's Supper, like baptism, is both uh, a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, we believe uh, it to be so. It is a sign or a symbol in that uh, through the elements and our uh, our handling of them, uh, we, we Christ is held forth, particularly in his dying. He is held forth by this sacrament and and the uh, the color of the wine and the breaking of the bread uh, symbolizes what experienced what was experienced by our Lord uh, in our place and for our benefit uh, but it is more than just a symbol uh, it is also a seal scripture teaches us um, it is that is to say it is God is saying something God the Son in particular is saying something who is the host of this table, uh, and he is, he is affirming, reaffirming, confirming, guaranteeing the promises of his gospel afresh to us through our participation in this meal. And so you are to think on those promises as you partake, uh, the gospel promises, that, uh, that you are forgiven, that God will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, that you have uh, grace to grow in holiness and to uh, live a life that uh, increasingly uh, is in conformity to that of your Savior. Uh, and similar uh, promise that you have a home awaiting you in heaven that will cannot be uh, taken from you, etc. So it is uh, a sign and a seal of the covenant uh, of grace. Uh, and also, by the way, a picture of the unity uh, of the church as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians. We are to res- uh, observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice in particular on our behalf. And we are, by partaking, we are proclaiming uh, the Lord's death, Jesus' death, uh, until he comes again. And it is because it is a sign and seal of the covenant, it is of great benefit to those who partake rightly, and that is to say, who partake by faith. Not just perfunctory, just like the sacrifice of old, God is offended when we partake in a perfunctory manner, just going through the motions. Uh, we need to be giving ourselves and taking, if you will, clinging to Jesus actively as we partake. Uh, and then he is pleased. As a, as a sign and seal of the covenant, it is also, the scriptures indicate, a means that the Holy Spirit uses to bless us. Um, presumably by strengthening us in our battle against uh, temptation to uh, give us a greater love for the Lord, uh, greater appreciation for his worship, etc., um, etc. Et uh, comfort if you're struggling 
um, assurance that God still loves you in spite of the bad week you had, things of that nature. Presumably are how the Lord would, uh, the Holy Spirit would bless you, um, or may bless you as you partake. It is not for everyone to partake of. It is only for those who know themselves to be believers. Uh, so if you've not made a public profession of faith, please uh, don't partake. Or if you have made a public profession of faith, but you know you're not a Christian or think you might not be a Christian, don't partake. There's danger in partaking if you're in that situation. Um, uh, you need to be a uh, baptized Christian, not necessarily in this church, but you need to be a baptized Christian. That's the way. That's the way we can be have some assurance that you actually are a Christian because uh, either this church or another church has recognized your profession of faith uh, as a uh, as a Christian, and uh, you are coming that way um, if you're if you're not a member of this church. So you need to be a baptized Christian, and you need to not be under discipline of some church. You don't have to be perfect, though. In fact, you. You don't, none of us are perfect or anywhere close. You don't have to uh, have all your spiritual ducks in a row. This is for people who are hurting, who are struggling, who um, have struggled with sin and lost a fair amount of the time. It's okay to be struggling with sin as long as you're struggling, as long as you haven't just given up and let let's sin reign in your life. That's that means you're not a Christian. But if you're struggling, that means you're a Christian. And though this is for Christians who are struggling. So don't shy away from uh, partaking just because you are struggling. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon this sacrament. Oh Lord, we thank you for means that you have appointed, Lord Jesus, by which we might grow in our love for you and our trust in you and our desire to serve you. We thank you for this particular means of grace, the Lord's Supper, your Supper. We ask, Lord, now that uh, you would set aside these elements from their common everyday use unto the holy purposes for which we are now going to use them. Um, Would you please bless us by your Spirit, as we partake and give us faith to feed on you in our hearts by by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name. Now give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, and then we'll eat together, and likewise with the wine.
In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. There is grape juice in the middle. If you cannot, in good conscience, partake of the wine. Otherwise, we would encourage you to take the wine. And, uh, yes, it's around the outside perimeter. pray. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to do what you did for us, Lord. That you were willing to suffer the infinite wrath of God. Your own infinite wrath, essentially. And that you were willing to do that um, for sinners, rebels, idolaters, such as ourselves. Lord, it's, it's mind-boggling, but we thank you so much that it's true. Thank you for your love for us, your undying love for us. Would you please help us to love you better this week by loving your people, by loving our enemies, by loving you more 
You are so worthy of it. Please help us to honor you with greater love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.